Faith Fit Radio and the Diocese of Orlando presents Burning Hearts with Father Patrick O'Dottery, a program that is seeking to lead young adults to Christ and to enkindle a deeper faith that is fully alive. Now, here is your host. Welcome to Burning Hearts, a Bible study for atheists, agnostics, for unbelievers, for people of all faiths, and for people of no faith. We have been studying the epistle of James in the Christian scripture, and we're in chapter 2 of that epistle. Now, I find it very interesting that in the early Christian church, you obviously had some people who were snobs, people who looked down on other people. And I must admit that that goes on in the church today. One of the things that saddens me the most about a lot of churches today is that the real poor don't seem to come to church, uh, too ashamed, perhaps, of their lack of good clothing. And there's something wrong. There's something really wrong if the church has, is just a middle-class phenomenon uh, because Jesus associated with the lowly and the poor and the outcasts. Listen now to uh, James chapter 2 where he talks about this problem in the early Christian church. My brothers, do not try to combine faith in Jesus Christ, our glorified Lord, with the making of distinctions between classes of people. In other words, don't, don't be going around saying you really believe in Jesus and then in your mind making distinctions between classes of people. Now suppose a man comes into your synagogue beautifully dressed and with a gold ring on and at the same time a poor man comes in in shabby clothes and you take notice of the well-dressed man and say come this way to the best seats then you tell the poor man stand over there or you can sit on the floor by my footrest can't you see that you have used two different standards in your mind and turned yourself into judges and corrupt judges at that now uh, at least it's consoling to know that the very first assembly of Christians had problems with class distinction uh, in their churches because here you have James, the first bishop of Jerusalem, reprimanding them. Apparently they were, as you can heard, uh, making a fuss over the wealthy and leading them to the best seats and telling the poor to sit off someplace on the floor by, by my footrest. And James charges them with being corrupt judges. Now, I must admit this again touches me rather deeply because I myself am inclined to judge people by externals, by whether or not they are clean and whether or not they are wearing uh, reasonably good clothes. At least I expect them to keep themselves clean. I grew up in, a, in an environment where I was told that cleanliness is next to godliness and it stuck in me, you know. Uh, so growing up I was expected not to associate with people who were dirty or wore shabby clothes. Now there's a horror in all of this. This phrase cleanliness is next to godliness is not out of the, out of the Bible and it's not the teachings of Jesus Christ. And it certainly isn't true nowadays. Um, 
I know that all over the United States and all over the world, especially the United States and Europe, uh, the most horrible, horrible crimes are committed in germ-free environments. And I think you know what I'm talking about. Around the world every year, we kill, by direct abortion, 60 million babies a year in sterile environments. So cleanliness is certainly not next to godliness. But there's something there, there's something in us, uh, and we are inclined to judge by appearances, and this is terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. And I've done it myself, and I ask God to forgive me. Here's a little story that illustrates um, this point about externals. A family of five were enjoying their day at the beach. The children were bathing in the ocean and making sandcastles in the sand, when in the distance a little old lady appeared. Her grey hair was blowing in the wind, and her clothes were dirty and ragged. She was muttering something to herself as she picked up things from the beach and put them into a bag. The parents called the children to their side and told them to stay away from the old lady. As she passed by, bending down every now and then to pick things up, she smiled at the family. But the family didn't return her greeting. They didn't smile back. Many weeks later, they learned that the little old lady had made it her lifelong crusade to pick up bits of glass from the beach so people wouldn't cut their feet. Now, isn't it shocking and awesome in a way what happened here? You know, an old lady being judged because she was an old lady, and yet uh, beneath those shabby clothes and all that unkempt hair was a lovely human being who was picking up bits of glass so that the very children who were told to stay away from her would not cut their feet. In the town of Coco, Florida, where I was stationed one time at St. Mary's Church, there was a, an old lady, a bag lady. Her name was Willie Bayless. She may still be alive. It's been 10 years since I've been over that way. Willie was uh, shell-shocked in World War II, and now she was well, quite mad. You know, even in the summer's heat, you could see her. She appeared to be wearing, you know, four sweaters and several pairs of pants. And she went round the streets of Rockledge, Coco, uh, picking up pieces of paper off the streets and dumping them um, into the dumpster, the city dumpster, one of them anyway. And one day, some friends of mine found Willie walking through the streets of Coco, tears flowing down her face. And she had apparently something in her hands, holding, holding it in front of um, her. It was something that was wrapped up in plastic. And so she, um, these friends of mine stopped her and asked her what she was holding in her hands. And uh, they opened up the plastic, and, it, and apparently there, or there was in the plastic a crucifix. It was about three feet tall and a foot wide and with a kind of a broken figure of Christ on the cross. And poor Willie thought a terrible sin had been committed. Somebody, it seemed to her, had thrown away a baby. Or We don't know exactly what she was thinking, 
But the poor lady was horrified anyway to find this crucifix in the dumpster. And this was an old lady who was frightened of people. But here she is walking down the streets with this cross. So the friends of mine asked her, did she remember me? And thank God she did. And they said to her, well, we'll take the cross and give it to Father O'Doherty. He's in Ocala now. And if you're ever interested, uh, this cross has uh, a place of honor even in our big, beautiful, lovely church. Um, it's If you were coming in the back door of the church, it's on the right-hand exit in the hallway so people can see it coming in and out from the side of the church. So anyway, uh, the point is that Christians should not and must not make distinctions between classes of people, uh, judging them by their external dress or clothing. Um, here's another example of, of how terribly weak Christians are sometimes in their behavior. In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi, the great Gandhi, uh, tells how in his student days in South Africa, he became deeply interested in the Bible, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. He became convinced that Christianity was the answer to the caste system that had plagued India for centuries, and he seriously considered becoming a Christian. One day he went to a church to attend Mass and get instructions. It looks like it was a Catholic church. He was stopped at the entrance and gently told that if he desired to attend Mass, he was welcome to do so in a church reserved for blacks. He left and never returned. I remember seeing that lovely American movie a few years ago called Sounder. Um, and in the movie, this black family, uh, a husband and wife and two children are walking along, cutting up and having a great old time. And then they passed a church, a Christian church. And the little boy said to his papa, Papa, how come we never go to church? And the father uh, said to him, Well, son, he said, uh, I went into that church about 20 years ago before you were born, and the people there threw me out. And uh, so when I went home, I said to God, They won't let me in, Lord, because I'm black. You know what the Lord said to me? What are you complaining about, said God? They won't let me in either. James goes on and he says, Listen, my dear brothers, it was those who are poor according to the world that God chose, my dear, uh, to be rich in faith and to be the heirs to the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. In spite of this, you have no respect for anybody who was poor. Isn't it always the rich who are against you? Isn't it always their doing when you are dragged before the court? Aren't they the ones who insult the honorable name to which you have been dedicated? Well, the right thing to do is to keep the supreme law of Scripture. You must love your neighbor as yourself. But as soon as you make distinctions between classes of people, you are committing sin and under condemnation for breaking the law. Now, there's an interesting line in James again. Listen, my dear brothers, he said, 
It was those who were poor, according to the world, that God chose to be rich in faith and to be the heirs to the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. And if you look through the whole Bible, God seems to be forever choosing the weak to confound the strong. I'll give you a couple of examples of it. Um, in the Hebrew scripture, um, God, was, God appeared to a man named Gideon and said, O mighty champion, you have been chosen to deliver Israel. And he said, The Lord is with you. And um, Gideon said, If the Lord is with us, how come the Philistines are beating us to death and stealing our crops and stealing our food? And the angel of the Lord explained to Gideon that he was now chosen to be the champion. And he says to God, which is very interesting, he says, he said, me. He says, we're from the meanest family in all Manasseh. And I, he said, am the most insignificant person in my father's house. And yet this is whom God chose to be one of the judges of Israel at the time that they were so sorely oppressed by their enemies. Another good example would be um, when the Israelites demanded the king, the first king was Saul, but the second king, uh, God sent Samuel to his, his judge to, uh, or his prophet to Jesse who lived at Bethlehem to uh, anoint one of his sons as the second king of Israel. And Samuel thought um, that the older brothers who were strong and powerful in Jesse's household were surely the people uh, that were to be the next king of Israel. And God said, no, 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 no. Uh, he, while they were strong and big and powerful, uh, they weren't God's choice. So finally Jesse presented his youngest one of all, whose name was David, a, a youth handsome with a ruddy appearance. And God said to Samuel, anoint him. Now here again is another example of it. God picked the weak, he picked the youngest, he picked the most insignificant of Jesse's children to be the second king of the Jews. Moses is another example of it. Moses murdered a man at the age of 40, then he fled out of Egypt and he married Zipporah, the uh, daughter of the priest of Midian. And at the age of 80, uh, Moses, who is now an old man, is called by God, the famous story of the burning bush, and God says to him, Come now, I send you to Pharaoh. You are to lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses protested. He says, I am a poor speaker. And he says, Say not that you are a poor speaker, for I am with you. Each time, God picks the most unlikely characters to do his work. Um, I'd be another example of it if you take a look. Here I am, a recovering sinner, a recovering alcoholic, a recovering drug addict, and yet I'm the pastor of a very large church and struggling with my accent to preach the message of Christianity to you, um, living on the air in Ocala. Um, uh, some examples from, it, from the New Testament, when, from the New Testament scriptures, when Jesus picks the twelve, he picks the most unlikely characters. Uh, Peter denied him three times, Thomas doubted him, 
They had some of them had violent tempers. Uh, Simon the Zealot, who was one of the twelve, uh, was a man similar to Yasser Arafat or Gaddafi. Uh, this kind of stuff, and and the most, in my mind, striking of all God's choices was the choice of Paul. Paul was somebody who hated the Christian Church, who persecuted it, who uh, supervised the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And this same Saul was on his way to Damascus to arrest anybody who was a Christian, and a blinding light surrounded him, and he was struck to the ground. And a voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, sir, that I am persecuting? And the voice said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And this man who persecuted the church went on to be the greatest apostle of the church. It was he, and not the twelve, who seems to have spread the Christian message into Turkey, into Greece, all the way into Rome, and into Spain. And that's God for you, forever picking the weak to confound the strong. So Christians then are called on uh, to respect the poor and to honor the high rank that they have in the church. But instead, I'm afraid the opposite happens, that the poor are very often driven out, and it looks like in today's churches in America, the poor are not even welcome in the churches. May the Lord forgive us. James next takes up this whole notion of salvation. One day, uh, Jesus was asked, Are they few in number who are to be saved? And he gives a rather startling answer. He said, Try to come in through the narrow door. Many, I tell you, will try, but will be unable to do so. And then he went on to say, The road that leads to damnation is wide and spacious, and many there are who follow it. But the road that leads to salvation is narrow and difficult, and few there are who take it. Now, I'm a kind of amazed at this passage. Prior to coming to America, nobody ever asked me, are you saved? It's, it seems like a foreign term to me. And my answer to it now, if somebody says to me, are you saved? Well, I say, I don't know yet, but I will know when, using an image, when the gates of heaven hit me on the rear end, on the way into heaven. Then I know I'm definitely saved. So this whole business of people walking around saying they are saved uh, is a bit of a mystery to me. There's, they seem to be saying, I'm definitely uh, going to heaven. Yet the great Saint Paul uh, says, I work out my salvation in fear and trembling. I know that Jesus Christ has died for my sins, and I know that my sins are forgiven, but I'm not yet fully saved in the sense that I'm not yet in heaven. So what exactly do they mean? And I, I see people going around and they say, are you saved? And if you are to say to them, um, I'm, I'm not saved, then how do I get saved? They would say, well, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. But the scripture actually doesn't say you are saved. It says you will be saved. So something is not quite right with all of this business of people saying they are saved. Uh, 
Now James takes up this problem and he addresses it very, very, very clearly. And the bottom line for James is, he said, faith without good works is dead and it has no power to save you. Now listen to what James has to say in his own words. This is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Take the case, my brothers, of someone who has never done a single good act but claims that he has faith. Will that faith save him? Like if someone says, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Will that faith save him? If one of the brothers or one of the sisters is in need of clothes and has not enough food to live on, and one of you who, that has faith says to him, I wish you well, keep yourself warm and eat plenty without giving them these bare necessities of life, then what good is that? Faith like that, if good works do not go with it, it is quite dead. Now can you hear that? He's saying faith without good works is dead. This is the way to talk to people of that kind. You say you have faith and I have good deeds. I will prove to you that I have faith by showing you my good deeds. Like, I will prove to you that I have faith in Jesus Christ by feeding the hungry, by clothing the naked, by giving drink to the thirsty, by visiting the sick, by visiting the imprisoned. Now, you prove to me that you have faith without any good deeds to show. Well, can you do it? You know, you can say that you're a believer in Jesus Christ until you're uh, blue in the face, but if you have nothing to show for it, uh, Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. So, you believe in the one God. That's credible enough. But the demons have the same faith. The demons believe in God, and they tremble at the thought. The, the, the demons believe in Jesus, and they also tremble with fear. Do realize, you senseless men, that faith without good deeds is useless. You surely know that Abraham our father was justified by his deed because he offered his son Isaac on the altar. There was the proof of his faith, his willingness to offer up his son to God, believing that God would raise his son from the dead. There you see it, faith and deeds are working together. His faith became perfect by what he did. This is what scripture really means when it says Abraham put his faith in God and this was counted as making him justified and that is why he was called the friend of God. You see now that it is by doing something good and not only by believing that a man is justified. A body dies when it is separated from the spirit and in the same way faith is dead if it is separated from good deeds. I often see people out there attacking Catholics because they have good deeds to show, but their good deeds are flowing from their faith in Jesus Christ. And God expects us to bear fruit. If you remember the story in the Gospel where Jesus approached a fig tree and the fig tree was full of leaves and now Jesus was hungry and he approached it uh, looking for fruit on the tree, and it was not the season for fruit. And then Jesus cursed the fig tree because uh, it had no fruit on it. Well, now, obviously something is going on in this gesture. Um, 
Jesus should, knew that it wasn't the season for fig tree, but the fig tree is a symbol of Israel, and it's also the symbol of the Catholic Church. And he expects us to bear fruit. And because the tree had no fruit, um, he, he cursed the fig tree and said, May no one ever eat from you again. And the next morning, the fig tree had withered to its roots. There is an astounding passage in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew 25, and it describes the last judgment of the world. And I want to draw to your attention uh, in this particular passage when God is judging the world, there is absolutely no mention of faith, no mention of believing in God, no mention of prayers, no mention of reading the Bible. Now, listen to what is mentioned, and I'm going to read the passage to you without interruption. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, escorted by all the angels, then he will take his seat on his throne of glory, and all the nations will be assembled before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you whom my father has blessed, take for your heritage the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you made me welcome. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to see me. Then the virtuous will say to him in reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and make you welcome, naked and clothe you, sick or in prison and go to see you? And the king will answer, I tell you solemnly, in so far as you did this, to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Next he will say to those on his left hand, Go away from me with your curse upon you to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you never gave me food. I was thirsty and you never gave me anything to drink. I was a stranger and you never made me welcome. Naked and you never clothed me sick and in prison, and you never visited me. Then it will be their turn to ask, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, a stranger or naked, sick or in prison, and did not come to help you? Then he will answer, I tell you solemnly, insofar as you neglected to do this to one of these, to one of these least ones, you neglected to do it to me and they will go off to eternal punishment and the virtuous to eternal life. Now, I hope you saw it there. Um, no place on the last judgment scene does God say, well, you believed in Jesus, you believed in God. Uh, he doesn't say anything about saying prayers. He doesn't say anything about uh, going to church. He doesn't say anything about being a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Buddhist or anything of that nature, but what he will say to you and what he will say to me was, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. 
I was a stranger and you made me welcome. Naked and you clothed me. Sick and you visited me. In prison and you came to see me. And then you and I will say to him, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger or make you welcome? Naked and clothe you? Sick or in prison and go to see you? And the Lord will answer you and he'll answer me. I tell you solemnly, insofar as you did this to one of these least brothers of mine, you did it to me. Now, I know it doesn't look like Christ when we feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty and clothe the naked and shelter the homeless. But he himself is telling us, you're doing it to me when you're doing it to them. Thank you for listening to Burning Hearts. My name is Patrick J. O'Doherty. Shalom. Faith Fit Radio and the Dice of Orlando presented Burning Hearts with Father Patrick O'Doherty. Thank you for listening. Check out the podcast at faithfitradio.org and tune in next time. May you be blessed with peace and joy.